Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Atalanta review episode, and I am joined by a guest to help me out with that. He's making his second appearance on the pod. The first was on Forza Napoli Worldwide. Lorenzo, welcome back. Hey, Joe. Lovely to be back. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Of course, it's nice to get back into the win column after we suffered our only our second defeat of the season. But, you know, there were a little bit of doubts, and we'll we'll kind of get to that heading into this match. Atalanta are certainly not the easiest opponent. They can always be a, a handful on any given match day. So we're definitely going to review that win. And then at the end, we'll very quickly chat about Napoli Eintracht Frankfurt, which is coming up on Wednesday. But as I'm sure everyone is already aware, Napoli beat Atalanta 2-0 on goals from Kovica Karaschelia and Amir Rachmani. I think there's only one place to start, Lorenzo. At this point, 26 rounds into the Serie A campaign, halfway through our round of 16 tie in the Champions League, we all know what Kvaraschelia is capable of, or at least maybe we thought we did. And then he goes and does something like this and leaves us all amazed once again. I mean, what a goal. This goal was reminiscent of, you know, pardon the pun, but the very best George Best. You know, this was the type of dribbling that only George Best and Diego did slightly different style of dribbling you know he dropped the shoulder less but would go past players in a very different way but yeah like very few players currently in world football thinking only really Messi and Mbappe have a similar dribbling technique to Kvara but unlike those two guys Kvara does it in a way where 
it's a little bit more predictable. Like, you know what's happening. You know he's going to cut through, fake, cut again, and then shoot. But, yeah, I mean, that was just mesmerizing. I watched videos back multiple different times, and I counted eight defenders <laughs> against him. So besides, yeah, obviously being a candidate for goal of the season, it was one of those goals that it really marks a moment in time. Like, that came across as the goal that defines him as one of the best players in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think Patrick Hendrick mentioned on the uh, English World feed that it's one of those goals where if you were in attendance, you're always going to remember that moment. And probably even if you weren't, right? Like within the context of the season and obviously the way it happened, lots of people are comparing it to lots of other famous players. You know, Burkamp is another one. There's a few others. There was a picture going around on social media of Maradona apparently taking on half of the Spanish team in the 1982 World Cup. As it turns out, that's not really what happened in that picture. He was just receiving a pass from a free kick, and it was the wall that was kind of looking at Maradona. But, you know, there were plenty of moments where Maradona took on the world and came out victorious. As you said, his goals were a little bit different. There were a lot of goals where he would just do something most people would just not even think of doing. And and there was a little bit of that with Cabada on this goal. But with Maradona, it was like crazy chips, you know, against Lazio or Hellas Verona or whoever were again, is what are you even doing trying that, let alone scoring it? But yeah, I think just a ridiculous goal. Clearly, none of the Atalanta players knew what to do. I think Rafael Toloi is still trying to find Cavada as we speak because he, he was spinning quite a bit on, on that play. Shout out to Angisa and Osiman on this play as well. I think, you know, Angisa yeah. made a great play to... First, he won the ball. He dispossessed Zapata but he just kind of tackled the ball off of him. And then he stepped up and blocked the pass of Ederson. And that's how the ball got to Osiman. And then, you know, Osiman held up just long enough for Cavada to make that play. So great play all around from those guys. One thing that perhaps people didn't notice about what Angisa did in the follow through of that play was he came up and so followed through the play with Osiman and Cavada, which meant that the eyes of the defenders were also on him for a potential cutback. So Osman was cutting in on the um, right wing, Quara was on the left wing, and he was central. And so he did play into the fact that the defenders were kind of misplaced, and especially, the I think it was Darun who was tracking back. He was basically faced with the option of either holding his line and making sure that Angisa doesn't get the play, or try and back up and, and get into... Quara's line of sight. In the end, he ended up doing neither of those things. He was kind of caught in the middle. But yeah, I think Toloi, after the game, he was asked if that was one of the you know, most beautiful goals that he's ever conceded. And he said he doesn't like to speak about rival goals, but he said everyone has to appreciate what, you know, what a great goal was scored. And it's proven by Spalletti, man. Like He never shows any emotion. And he, he stopped and he clapped and he really made a an effort to be seen by Kwara, you know, applauding him and congratulating him. This is one of those goals that he will remember for the rest of his life. I'm sure he'll score some amazing goals. He already has scored some amazing goals, even for Napoli, but this was a goal that goes on the kind of almanacs of football. Yeah, and Spalletti went even further in his post-match Confidenza Stampa where he said, he didn't compare Cavara to Maradona, but he said it was a goal that was worthy of Maradona. So again, that's basically the highest praise you can get in Napoli. 
the goal was scored in the 60th minute. So we had actually gone more than four halves without scoring a goal. We didn't score in the second half against Empoli. In fact, our last goal was in the 28th minute of that match against Empoli. Then, of course, we didn't score against Lazio, and we didn't score in the first half of this match. So it was about 212 minutes between Osiman's goal against Empoli and Cavada's against Atalanta, which was surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, the longest stretch of the season <laughs> because we've been so good, at, especially at goal scoring. The way this match was going, though, were you concerned that we could see a repeat of the Lazio match? where we struggled to break through and then conceded that crazy goal that Lazio scored against us? Like you said, it's very weird to see Napoli go multiple minutes, even without scoring. And, and you know, it's a, it's a bit of an oddity. But also, what I think was weird was that we seemed a little bit toothless against Lazio. Like, we did have a couple of opportunities, but it seemed like we were firing blanks. Whereas hot off the start of this game, even though we, you know, it took us a little while to to actually score, we were firing on all cylinders. Yeah, we had a couple of opportunities early on in the first half. We had Osman's header just before Kawara's goal, which most days of the week he absolutely buries into the bottom of the net. And that was unfortunate. He went off a little bit upset, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. Um but you look, look, I think what Spalletti is an absolute master of is controlling the game. And the fact that we're able to control the game whilst also creating is something that very few teams are able to do. It reminds me of the best Guardiola team at Barcelona because now his city teams, they don't do the same thing. His city teams are amazing, but his city teams play a very high press and they, they don't rest on the ball as much because they attack very close together. Whereas Napoli, you know, Lobotka and Anguissa, they will pass to each other, like basically standing still. Di Lorenzo often gets involved in this little triangle on that wing of just like standstill pass, one, two, three, one, two, three. And it's just, <laughs> it must be horrifying for other teams to play against that because you're like, do I attack it? Do I stand still? Because as soon as they attack it, the gap opens up. And actually when... Um, when Lozano plays, because Politano is a bit more of a, he's more direct with his dribbling, whereas Lozano lives on his wing and only cuts in really, well, obviously he's playing on his natural foot, so he doesn't really cut in as much. But when Lozano plays on that wing, oh my God, it's absolutely devastating for defenders. I see it where they see him go and they're obviously got their back to him. And it's just always impossible to stop him. <laughs> it's just great to see. I thought it was similar but different than the Lazio match, if that makes sense. Like, I never really felt like we were going to lose this one. At worst, I thought it might end in a scoreless draw. Even though Atalanta took the same sort of mental approach to the match as Lazio did, which was basically to play not to lose rather than to win, I don't think they executed as well as Lazio did. I thought Lazio were far more compact, and that really took away the space, which then limited our chances, whereas Atalanta gave us a lot more space to run into, and as a result, we created a lot more chances. And yeah, we relied on the brilliance of Cavada to put us in the lead, but it just felt like, you know, at least in the Lazio match, it felt like things were not going our way. And I agreed with Spalletti when he said after that match that, you know, we prepared well, we had the right approach, it just didn't happen for us. Whereas in this one, 
you always felt like the goal was coming and it was only a matter of time before we broke through. We had four really good chances in, I don't know, 10 minutes before we actually scored. There was, you know, the Osimhen bicycle kick, which ended up straight at Musso. But if that's on either side of him, it probably ends up in the back of the goal. There was the play where Politano and Cavada, the ball kind of fell perfectly in between them and Cavada ended up taking the shot and he skied over the bar. Yeah. There was the quick corner kick that Osimhen glanced just wide of the far post that you mentioned earlier. And then there was another chance where Cavada cut in from the, the wing and he had a low shot that just missed the near post. So we had lots of chances in this match. Our XG was around 1.4, which is still one of our lowest XGs of the season, but still significantly better than the 0.8 we put up against Lazio. I think where this match was similar to the Lazio one was that whether or not we scored, we dominated the ball, we pressed, and we counter-pressed to win the ball back quickly. You mentioned Nangisa and Lobotka when they have the ball, but when they don't have the ball, they're just constantly pressing and winning it back as quickly as they can. So we generally control the run of play, and as a result of that, when Atalanta did get the ball, it seemed like they just had so much ground to cover that it was just always going to be difficult for them to create chances, especially with the way that Rachmani and Kim played at the back. We held both Lazio and Atalanta to an XG of 0.2, so they created next to nothing. And and that's just further validation of what Spalletti, another thing he said after the Lazio match was that we played well and they just scored a ridiculous goal. You know, like, what can you do? That's not going to happen every single match, as we saw. Now, I don't think that Giampiero Gasperini helped himself a whole lot, particularly with respect to some of his choices of personnel. He started Duven Zapata over his top goal scorer, Adamola Lukman, and then he replaced Rasmus Hoyland with Luis Muriel at the break. Do you think Gasperini might have outcoached himself a little bit with some of those decisions? Yeah, this is going to sound a little bit rude on Gasperini because he does have a good CV, but he's not on Sarri's level, for example. He has nothing on Sarri, and... I think he tries a little bit too hard sometimes, like you said, to mirror the opposite teams. And he was actually okay in the first leg that we played against Atlanta earlier on in the season. For the first half an hour, they were really, really aggressively pressing us and boxed us off and didn't give us enough space. But then they tired out incredibly, and that's why you know, we scored on the brink of half-time and you know, moved forward. So this time, I think he was trying to go for a bit more of a conservative approach with the idea that if they let us play, then we would make mistakes and they could capitalize on it. The reality is, Joe, we're just we're not a team that makes many mistakes. Again, going back to that point about just playing, <laughs> there, was a, there was a really interesting comment made by one of the pundits on zone in the evening or after the game where they were saying Napoli play in a static dynamicity. So we are dynamic whilst being static. You know, we're, we're always able to quickly switch gear, but to people who watch us, we may seem like we're not moving, like we're, we're going very, very slowly forward. But then all of a sudden, Osman will go, Politano will go, Lozano will go, Quara will go. And, you know, those spaces all of a sudden just become incredibly difficult to make up for defenders. I think, like you said, Gasperini is someone who corners himself sometimes. It doesn't necessarily approach the games against the biggest teams with the same fare as he would do against the smaller teams. However, because a lot of bigger teams in Italy 
play with a low block, he's able to still get a result because they have amazing counter-attack players. Like, you know, Lookman is fantastic. The lad that they have, Hoyland, he looks really, really good. He's very quick. I was surprised that he didn't he didn't start actually, but I think Zapata's a little bit past it as well, to be honest. Yeah, so Hoyland did start alongside with Zapata. It was Lookman that didn't. Sorry, um, I meant I meant yeah. I, I was surprised that Lookman didn't start. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so was I. I mean, yeah. Zapata had just returned from an injury. I thought he played well, especially considering how little service he got in the match. He dropped quite often to help defend, and he got himself involved. Meanwhile, Lookman hadn't scored in a few matches, so maybe Gasparini just felt like that was reason enough for a change. But I thought it was very unusual that he waited until the 89th minute to bring Lookman on. Like, what's he going to do with one minute and two goals down, one minute in stoppage time? I feel like he probably should have been brought on at the very latest after the second goal, if not even before then. Before that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're you're away, you're playing away, you're losing one nil. You know, you might as well go for it at that point. So that change was a, a little bit odd. And then the one that really surprised me was he took Hoyland off at the break and replaced him with Muriel. And I thought, you know, with how deep Atalanta were playing, if they were going to score, it was likely going to come from a counterattack. So why wouldn't you leave the 20-year-old player on that has pace, has strength? Instead, he brings on a 31-year-old, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Muriel, yeah. who doesn't you know, have pace. So that was a little bit odd. Mind you, it was Muriel who got Atalanta's first shot on target. And then, uh, which by the way, didn't come until the 72nd minute. And then on the ensuing corner kick was Muriel that played the cross to Zapata. But Golini made a pretty nice save on, on both of those plays to uh, protect the clean sheet. Golini actually did really well considering right. that he was a last minute decision to start this match. How did you feel about his play? Do you know what? So I've I've met him. Yeah, I know him external to football though. He is, you know, we we all know about his rap passion and he's a really, really nice guy. I met him through a friend who was a music producer. This is like 4 years ago I met him in London when he moved to um when he moved to Tottenham. So 3 years ago maybe. And when I met him, he said to me, you know, I'd love to play for Napoli because of the fans. You know, I'd love to. But he was like, I, I don't know if I could handle the pressure because it must become so intense. And he actually made a comparison to Meret because they obviously know each other from the youth national teams. With Italy, he said, you know, Alex is an amazing keeper, but even he seems to have struggled with, with some of the pressures and stuff. And so when he signed, you know, I congratulated him. and. I was always hopeful that he would get a chance. I wasn't so hopeful that he would get a chance just randomly, you know, without a minute's warning. <laughs> and in such a big game where we were coming off the back of a defeat, yeah, I was hopeful that he might play a couple games when we're further along the Scudetto race that might not mean as much. But look, he came in and he was incredible. He had a very little to do, but he made three saves and all three of those saves were of a a growing difficulty rating. So I was really impressed by him. His mentality was spot on. Did you hear his declarations at the end? Where I did, yes. Yeah, they were, they were pretty damning. But you know, at the same time, I think they just reflect how difficult it can be to be a football player because you're someone who is brought in, there's a lot of expectations around you you mess up one game and then everyone turns on you. And Marat is proving so many people wrong right now, right? And yeah, hopefully he's 
he's on the right track to do so. You know, we probably won't need to call on him as much as we might have feared when when Alex was injured, but it seems like he's going to be fine and, and looks to be in the squad for Frankfurt. But great to have a solid pair of hands. And, you know, Napoli, one thing Napoli have had in the last sort of five, six years is very, very strong pairings in goal. You know, we've gone from the De Sanctis days where it was De Sanctis and then, you know, whoever other. I think we had a Canadian at one point, didn't we? Was there a Canadian that we had? Was um, was I have guy? to, off the top of my head, I can't think of it. Yeah, no, no, no. Let, let, let me back and look it up. Tony Doblas, yeah. So he was... Oh, Spanish. Oh, he was Spanish, but I think if he, did he come from maybe Canada? he had some sort of Canadian connection. Yeah, there's a massive like complaint campaign when we signed him because they were ah oh, maybe no 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 that that was it he he was about to sign for the White Caps I think they're called oh okay and then Napoli signed him and there was like incredibly <laughs> there was huge uprising they were like why are we competing for players with the with the White Caps and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've really moved on from those days, even from the Raphael days. You know, Raphael's great in the in the Super Cup, but yeah, we've consistently had at least two strong goalkeeping options. And players like Golini, I think, are the epitome of what it means to have depth in your squad, because he is someone who could comfortably, genuinely comfortably, start for fifteen teams in Serie. A. Yeah, I think you remove Musso, who's a good keeper. I really like him, by the way. Manyan, Chesney, Onana, and Meret. I think Golini should start for anyone else. I, I like Malinkovic Savic at Torino, but do you, can you name anyone else that, you know, he couldn't The way start? Provedel's playing this year, he probably remains a starter at Lazio, but. Yeah, yeah. And, and probably Vicario is also very good, but I'm saying Golini could, you know, he, he would be the starter if those guys weren't there. Starting. Exactly. He could replace yeah. Rodel. He could replace Vicario if yeah. those guys left. But I think he's a better keeper than Terracciano. He just yeah. fell out with, with the fans, and that's why ultimately he's got displaced. But he is a better keeper than Terracciano. I think he was brought in originally to be a number one. I think so too. And judging by the comments that he made to you privately and also from that post-match with the zone, it sounds like maybe the psychology of the game – is a challenge for him, but yeah, it is. It I, is. I almost wonder if this sort of last minute you're starting helped him because he didn't really have the time to to think to about, it. about it. Yeah, yeah, that's actually a very good point. That may well have been the case. You know, maybe if he did know that he was going to play, you know, a week in advance, that might have he might have psyched himself out. Yeah, his nerves might have not. Yeah, you know, might have got the better of him. Yeah, that's that's a very good point actually. You know, we've given Cristiano Giuntoli a lot of praise for what he did in the summer, but I think you've kind of been alluding to this, but to bring in Golini and what was effectively a swap with Fiorentina was also very cunning because as much as I like Sidigu, I thought he was a good sort of locker room guy with his experience at the Euros or whatever. I did not have much confidence that he could be thrown into the starting 11 if we picked up an injury. And I think the club kind of recognized that while all of us and and everyone else was enjoying the ride, this was a risk and that was a a position of weakness for us. And they went out and did something about it without, again, without really breaking the bank to bring in Golini. For those who who didn't see the the post-match on the zone, 
he gave the impression from that interview that he's now in a very happy place and he feels like he's being taken seriously. He said, you know, all the players train the same way. Spalletti doesn't differentiate between starters and substitutes. Yeah. He said Spalletti was very human with him. And he talked about the difficulty in the first six months of the year where he was pretty much ridiculed at Fiorentina. So now he's in a place where he's being appreciated. He got a lot of love after the match. So I think that's really good for him and his confidence. Another player who perhaps was maybe not thrown into the starting lineup like Golini, but was not expected to start until about midweek was Matteo Politano. He started because Chucky Lozano picked up a minor muscular injury in training. How did you feel about Politano's performance? Yeah, so this is uh, yeah what I alluded to. He annoys me so much because I, I really like him, but he annoys me so much because it takes not being in the team five games, six games, for him to come in and have you know a really good game. And he, he did have a really good game. There was a, a play that he made in the first half where he blitzed past the uh, right back and caused him to get a yellow card. By the way, what a crunch tackle that was. That, that could have comfortably been a red card as well, to be honest with you. But it's annoying with Politano because I've been a fan of him for a long time. I was really happy when he finally joined Napoli after all the you know, the nonsense around him joining for years prior. But Lozano right now is just a different player. He, he's on a different level. Politano is, he had a very good game, but I think Spalletti should not hesitate to keep him in. If Lozano's fit, Lozano has to play because Lozano adds a different element to Napoli that people underestimate. Because he doesn't score goals, people think that Lozano is not as valuable as Kvarashkelia or Osimhen. But I challenge anyone to go and re-watch the last five or six games that Lozano's played for Napoli and to go and see exactly what his dribbles do to the space that Osimhen and Kvarashkelia have. And when a defender goes to back up, the right back so that they can take the ball off Lozano, automatically Osimhen has more space. Automatically Quaracheli has more space. And very few wingers in Serie A can do what he does. He's like the screenwriter of a really good film. Never really gets the plaudits unless it's at the Oscars where people know what they're talking about. Like You and I are never going to say, wow, this screenwriter is amazing. But I really, really like Lozano. And whilst Politano came in and had a very good game, I think if Lozano's ready to come back, he should 100% be straight back into the team. Our friend Vincenzo is going to love that reference because, uh, you know, he talked about the director, the regista being the most important person yeah. because that's what he is for a living. But yeah, no, that's a, that's a great analogy. You know, I thought aside from, you know, that one chance that he missed in the first half, it was a very strong performance from Politano. I completely understand your point that you kind of wish that would just always be the case and not because he has to earn something. You could also argue that he's trying to win his position on the national team for the upcoming international break, and maybe that was motivating him as well. The player who got booked was Giorgio Scalvini, who maybe he could have gotten a red card there for that one tackle. He definitely should have gotten a second yellow in the second half yeah, for uh, pulling Cavada back. I don't know how that one uh, slipped by or was not shown. But yeah, I thought Politano was very involved on both sides of the pitch in the attack. He played a couple of dangerous crosses into the area. The one that led to that Osimhen bicycle kick, Osimhen's header that missed the target. Those were both crosses from Politano. And then that slide tackle that you mentioned. Again, our wingers tracking back and helping defend is also such a big part of the way this team plays, especially with our fullbacks, you know, and especially when you have Oliveira and Di Lorenzo playing. Like Mario Rui gets forward, but a bit more conservatively, he's looking to cross, whereas 
Oliveira and, and Di Lorenzo really join in on the attack and we kind of change to a back three when we have the ball. So it's really important that those wingers track back and help to defend when those guys are bombing forward so we don't get numerical disadvantages. There was actually one moment that was picked up on the microphones where it was late in the match. I think we were already up 2-0 and Spalletti's yelling at Cavada to track back. <laughs> He's saying, Cavada, 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 die, die. And, uh, and he actually led up. And this was the play that then led to the third save that Golini made because right. Zapacosta cut in. He played a diagonal ball to Zapata, kind of hit the back of his heel, but he recovered it. And then he teed up Ruggeri for the shot. So I'm not going to criticize Cavada after the, <laughs> the goal he scored, but you know, just it shows the importance to Spalletti of his wingers tracking back to help defend. We already talked about Anguisa and Loboca, so I'm going to skip over them a little bit. But the other player that I want to kind of highlight his individual performance was Amir Rachmani. Hmm. You know, after he came back from the injury, he had a couple of shaky appearances, but I feel like since then, and, and maybe he doesn't get enough love because Kim is so good that he kind of yeah. overshadows Rachmani's play, but I feel like he is playing at an extremely high level right now. Listen, you flagged the applause that Juntoli needs to receive, and Rachmani is one of the signings that Juntoli made that was most criticized right at the start because Gattuso was not was just not able to mold him into the defender that he is now, primarily due to the fact that Gattuso wanted to play this out from the back football, but that depended on both centre-backs playing from the back. Whereas in reality, any team that plays out of the back always has one that plays and one that holds. And in fact, Spalletti has Kim who plays the ball and Rachmani is Rachmani's responsibilities are to make sure that he drops into the hole when Kim pushes forward. Kim is amazing at making the runs, just like Kulibari was amazing at making the runs. The real reason why Rachmani is a success story is because Rachmani was brought in to be the third and at one point became the fourth option during the summer that Manolas came. And let's not even talk about Manolas and the miserable failure that that was, which brings me back to the fact that, you know, Juntari isn't just someone who puts his hand into a toilet and picks up gold. <laughs> you know, sometimes he does get shit. But the reality is, Rachmani is one of those players who will fly under the radar because he just does his job very well. He does very little beyond his job, but then he scores an amazing goal against Juventus, a striker's goal. And yesterday, you know, he, that header, believe me, if he tries and does that again another nine times, I doubt he'll get it. You know, that was perfectly executed. Musso looked like he was a little bit slow in jumping. And so he, probably if he had jumped a little bit quicker and extended his hand a little bit further, he could have got it. But Osimhen was waiting for it anyway. So it's highly likely that we would have scored regardless. But Rahmani is one of those players. He's just perfect to have in your squad because he's always going to give you 110%. And I think he actually learned where his flaws are, where his weaknesses are. And now he doesn't try and play that 60-yard cross-field ball that he tried to play before, and he does leave it to Kim. Because realistically, we don't need two midfielders as centre-backs. You know, Kim is very much a midfielder. I'd say Kim probably has better feet than Anguissa and some of our other midfielders. But having players like Rachmani in our squad, you sometimes underrate them because of how much better than the norm a couple of other players are, but Rachmani, again, 
he would comfortably start ahead of you know a bunch of different players. And I think, look, if there's anything to go by, Kumbula, <laughs> Kumbula, <laughs> who was the yeah, he was the target. He was the more expensive of the two at the time, yeah. I mean, he's an absolutely shocking defender. He's one of the worst signings, I think, that has gone for that amount of money in Serie A, definitely in my lifetime. Yeah, he he also got himself sent off. uh, Ridiculous. stupid foul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, I think Berardi put his leg up or whatever, but you you just can't do that. You can't react. It's similar to Mario Rui. Mario Rui, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Rachmani has been so solid. And and I think, again, it's hard to not give the credit to Spalletti, right? Like you compared how Gattuso used Rachmani and now you see how he's playing under Spalletti and you just have to think, okay, Spalletti's identified each player's strengths. He's identified their weaknesses and he's just shaping the way the team plays to get the best out of each of the individuals. And then, of course, out of the team as a whole. Shout out to Elmas as well for the delivery on that goal. He was taking the corner because Zielinski was taken off around the 65th minute. He was replaced by Ndombele, who also played quite well. He's really starting to look like the player that that a lot of people yeah. you know, appreciated at the time. Yeah, he's one of those players who, if we weren't about to waltz to a 20-point ahead Scudetto in, he probably would have played a more important role. But, you know, that midfield, yeah. How do you take off Angisan Lobotka, right? Like it's impossible. And and even though Zielinski's been more undertone, you'd argue that if you're gonna take Zielinski off, Elmas is obviously the the much better yeah. replacement option. But yeah, Ndombele, look, I mean, he's definitely not worth the 70 million pounds that Tottenham paid for him. But if they can get a discount on his buy option, which I think is 30 million euros, which I think is yeah. pretty steep to be fair, he would be our most expensive midfield signing if we paid that but if we can get him for like 15 million euros then yeah i'd definitely keep him in the team yeah i agree and and that's why i keep saying it but my only regret about eliminating being eliminated from the coppa italia is that yeah all these other guys who probably deserve to play a little bit more would have played in that competition simeone Ndombele, Elmas, although Elmas plays fairly regularly off the bench so yeah maybe even berzinski but it is what it is. They're still, at least they're playing well when they do come on now. So that's a yeah. Last thing I wanted to get your thoughts on from this match was Victor Osiman's frustration when he was taken off in the 85th minute. How do you feel about that? Joe, man, he, he's just an elite level striker who feeds off scoring goals, you know, and he went off the pitch hungry. I know he got an assist and, you know, he played a vital role in winning the game regardless, but. A striker like that, he's just one of the, he's a vulture. He wants to score. And when he doesn't score, he's frustrated with himself. And and actually, so one of my friends works as part of the kit management team. And they said that in the locker rooms afterwards, he spent some time folding the the shirts, like basically repaying his frustration by, you know, helping out because you wanted to basically apologize for lashing out. And yeah, the great thing about him is that he is someone who, when Napoli lose, I've heard from multiple sources, he is untenable. Like, you you know, literally he's so angry, doesn't go on social media. Like, yeah, he's been training, you know, an hour early the next day because he's just got this hunger to win. And, you know, I, I do fear we will lose him in the summer, but... I will never stop watching Osimhen 
for what he gives to Napoli. What he's given to Napoli, if he leaves in the summer or whenever he leaves, I will forever be an Austrian fan just for the devotion and the you know the real passion that he's given. He is what you know you often have mentioned on your channel, Grinta. He embodies La Grinta Azzurra. I chose my words very carefully when I said that he was frustrated when he was taken off, not because he was taken off. Yeah. And I completely agree. I don't think he was angry at Spalletti. I think he was no, angry no. at himself. Yeah. You know, because he did have a couple of decent chances in this match and probably could have scored. You know, there was one play immediately before he was taken off where Toloy played a bit of an awkward law backwards and he had the chance to head the ball forward to himself and he, he would have had a clear break, but he just got a little too much weight on the ball, and yeah. the ball kind of bounced safely to Musso. And you can see he, just by the way he reacted there that he was so upset with himself because he knew that might have been his goal. But, you know, as long as that's the case, I was going to use the exact same analogy about strikers being hungry specimens that I'm perfectly fine with that. I'd always say it. I'd rather, I'd much rather have a player who's really upset than a player who was indifferent because it's a sign of passion. It's a sign that he cares. And then the other thing too that I think is important is that, yeah, he showed that frustration you know, right before he was taken off. But for the most part, we didn't see much of that frustration on the pitch. It was kind of like he he kept it all under control throughout the match and, and he was staying focused. And then he kind of let it out when he came off the pitch, which I think is another sign of his growing maturity under Spalletti as well. Because in past seasons we've seen a lot more gesturing, a lot more complaining to the officials and all of these yeah. things. So, you know, he's really developing in terms of his his leadership and some of the sort of less technical things, the mentality of the game. In any event, we got all three points. Lorenzo, I don't know how superstitious you are having been born and raised in Napoli and nothing is impossible. But for me, this win eliminated any doubts about Napoli winning the Scudetto. Yeah, I mean, Joe, it was this win, also the fact that Inter lost their eighth game of the season. Just, you do not win the league losing eight games. It's just mathematically impossible. And Milan and almost every other team that we faced just did not strike me as teams who have the mentality to not only just... So, (laughs) there's a calculation. So... From now onwards, any team behind us would have to win every single game they play on top of us having to lose six games. So up until now, if Napoli had lost one game, then another team could afford to lose one more game and win every other game. But Napoli would have to lose seven games and Milan, for example, or Inter would have to win 12 games in a row. I just don't see any team doing that. So, yeah, look, you know, as, as superstitious as I am, and I am superstitious, and I'm, yeah, I know people don't see it, but I wear literal four-leaf clovers. <laughs> and I have a cornetto here with my rosary. But, um, yeah, I can't see it happening. I, I definitely think we put the the nail in the coffin for the other teams with this win. It was a resounding win, because even though it was only 2-0, we dominated from start to finish and hopefully we get a good result against Frankfurt and yeah, we progress in the Champions League. And if we can wrap this up, you know, we were talking before, if we can wrap this up by early April, I genuinely think we have a chance of going further in the Champions League than many people might expect as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, heading into this round, I think 
we realistically could have seen our lead reduced to 12 or 13 points. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we all thought Inter would beat Spezia. I don't think, say, a Napoli draw or even a loss to Atalanta would have been so unheard of. Mm-hmm. But basically the opposite happened. And now we have this 18-point gap. As you said, Lazio and Roma both dropped points. Even if Juventus were to have their point deduction reversed, they would still be 15 points behind us. I mean, they might be the one team who could actually pull off the, you know, win out the rest of the season. But I just don't see Napoli losing six matches, you know, in the final 12 when we've only lost two in the first 28. <laughs> so, or no, I, th- I think Juventus are going to get more points deducted, to be honest. Well, uh, that's the other thing. There's also the whole salary maneuvers case. Yeah. Completely yeah I, I think people who are thinking that they might get some points back <laughs> are actually pretty off the mark. Having trained as a lawyer, I've you know, I've looked into what it means legally, what they did from a piercing the corporate veil perspective. And if they don't get points deducted for the salary maneuver, then it will prove the level of corruption that exists in Italian football. Yeah, well, I mean, the handball rule doesn't apply to them either. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. Okay, that will do for part one. In part two, we'll very quickly look ahead to our match against Eintracht Frankfurt on Wednesday. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to part two of the Fort Sinopoli podcast. If you like the show, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Fort Sinopoli pod. It's entirely voluntary. There are no set tiers, but it does help me to continue to produce content both on the podcast and on our website at fortsinopolipress.com. All right, Lorenzo, let's quickly talk about the Champions League, which resumes for Napoli on Wednesday with our second leg against Eintracht Frankfurt. Both of these teams could look a little bit different from the first leg. So let's start with Napoli, who might have finally been hit by the injury bug. Lozano suffered that muscle resentment about midweek in training. Meret didn't start against Atalanta due to discomfort in his wrist. Kim Min Jae was taken off during the Atalanta match with a calf injury, though he did walk off the pitch on his own. And judging by the latest reports, I'd be surprised if any of those players were not in the squad, but we'll see if they're in the starting eleven. Meanwhile, Mario Rui is healthy, but missed the last two Serie A matches due to suspension. How do you see Spalletti lining up for the second leg, which will be in Napoli? I think Mario Rui will play. I think he'll play because he's not played the last two games, so he's fresh. I also think that whilst you know there is the argument that Oliveira is more physical and then suits the Champions League better, Frankfurt are actually not the kind of incredibly pacey physical beast kind of team where he adds any more significant value than than Mario. So I think, yeah, he can start comfortably and it not be a problem. If anything, you know, his attacking prowess is so important. And I think we'll play our, our brand of football at the Maradona, but we might not be as proactive as an aggressive because we have a two-goal lead. So I can see across from him being extremely useful because, you know, Osimhen might get on the top of it and, and we might get a goal that just cements our lead. 
So yeah, I, I see that happening as a change. I think Kim will play, and you know, Spalletti obviously made a comment saying that when he was coming off, he said, "We're training tomorrow. Don't pull any silly things." But I have to say, I was, as always, very impressed with Juan Jesus when he came on. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily be crying if Juan or, or Ostergaard had to play and Kim just got some time to rest. One change that I would like to see, and this is not because I'm criticizing him, but I think Ziliski could do with not playing a game because I think Elmas substitutes him fantastically. I think Elmas is actually one of those few players in the world who often plays better when he's not a starter. But to be honest with you, that Frankfurt midfield is very inefficient at ball retention. And Lozano and Elmas are the type of players who they're so good at winning the ball back along with Lobotka and Angisa, who do that as a living, right? You know, <laughs> Lobotka and Angisa, they have to do that, whereas Lozano and, and Elmas are the type of players who do it as a, an extra part of their game. And obviously, we scored from Lozano doing that in the first leg. We scored twice, actually. One was knocked off or offside. But I'd like Elmas to play. But other than that, I think Melet will come back. You know, it seems like he's fully healed. And it was just a sort of a precaution that he didn't play. And yeah, look, I mean... Whilst I agree that some of these players do need to rest because they're absolute machines, I think it's important to play the strongest 11 off the front foot, maybe get a goal. And if we're you know three goals ahead by half time, then maybe sort of midway into the second half. I know that Spalletti doesn't like to do them so much, but maybe midway through the second half, bring on a Simeone, bring on Politano if Fodano starts and just you know, give a couple of these guys a run around. Meret did tests at the Pineta Grande clinic and the results came back negative. So all indications are that he'll be good to start. As you mentioned earlier, Lozano completed the full group training on Monday. So that confirms his muscle injury was fairly minor. And he was so good in that first leg that I can see him starting, but maybe they give him like a time limit, an hour, 65 yeah. minutes, something like that, and then bring Politano on. Curiously, there was no mention about Kim on Sunday's training report, but on Monday, he did part of the group session and part individual training. So that's a good sign. I'm still kind of 50-50 on Kim playing. I think, you know, it'll depend on what Tuesday's training session, how that goes. But I'm okay if, as you said, if Juan Jesus starts, because then, you know, with such a big advantage in Serie I would rest them against Torino. And then we have the international break. So we could actually give Kim potentially like three weeks off here make sure his calf heals up, even if it is a minor injury, and then he's ready to go for the Milan match. And I agree. I think it makes sense to start Mario Rui just because he's rested. Now, Frankfurt will be missing a couple of players as well, particularly up top. Of course, Randall Colomani is suspended after being sent off in the first leg. Jesper Lindstrom suffered an ankle injury in training between Frankfurt's matches against Wolfsburg and Stuttgart. Apparently, he had to be carried off the training ground, so he's going to be out for a couple of weeks. So Rafael Bore will start in place of Kolomwani, and from what I've read, Daichi Kamada will shift up and start as the Trequartista, where Lindstrom's position is, and that means that in all likelihood, Sebastian Roda would play in the center of the midfield next to Jibril Sell. Ansgar now has a hip problem, so he's likely to miss the match as well. Otherwise, I don't think we'll see too many changes from Frankfurt. It'll be a 3-4-2-1 with Kevin Trapp in goal. Evan Indica, Tuta, and then there's a few options for the third center back. Smolcic, Hasebe, Jakic, 
And then Philip Max, Jabril So, Sebastian Roda, and Aurelio Buta across the midfield. Kamada, Gota, and Bora up top. Okay, the last thing I want to get your thoughts on before we wrap up the pod is this whole situation with the Frankfurt fans. First, they were allowed to attend. Then we heard they're not allowed to attend. Now some of them are allowed to attend. What are, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? I mean, Joe, I, I don't want to get into the rabbit hole of politics in Italian football right now because it's one that we could start now and end at the end of the Frankfurt game. But you know, I find it ridiculous because they're ruining what football really is. You know, Frankfurt fans should be allowed to come, just like Napoli fans should be allowed to travel to any stadium because regardless of whether or not fans are going to fight, that's football. You know, ultras are part of football. Traveling fans are part of football. Football is not a theater. It's one big thing that I disagree with De Laurentiis about. He's trying to stemper out the idea of bringing flags to the stadium. He doesn't want the organized groups in the stadium. I grew up at the Stade San Paolo. I was in Curva B from when I was very young. And I know that Joe, we've never won. We won twice with the best player in history. And notwithstanding that, everyone in the world knows Napoli's fans are among the best in the world, if not the best in the world. And we are only the best in the world because of our curve and because of how much we sing and how much we devote to our team. So I think this whole debacle of the back and forth, six times I read, three times it was reinstated and three times it was deviated the band. So... It's just an embarrassment and just shows how far away we are from the real sort of established leagues in the world who have policies in place that are not malleable, they're not changeable, and they just allow the fans to be the integral part of the of the show. But yeah, not too much more that I want to comment. I just think there is a position for politics in everything, but I think when it becomes the arching theme and when everything is around trying to play the political scene is just the worst way to go about football. Yeah, I completely agree. And I might take you up on uh, recording a separate episode. We could probably do a 10-part mini-series in the off-season on just <laughs> politics and Italian football, or if we really want to go nuts, just Italian politics in general. But um, yeah, yeah it, it is pretty ridiculous. For those of you who haven't really tracked this story, basically Frankfurt fans were initially banned from attending the match. Then they appealed to the TAR, which is like the regional courts, which I didn't even know you could appeal for something like this, but Mm -hmm. they did and they succeeded. And sometimes it almost feels like you just need to file an appeal to change a mind because it's like that's the easier way out. And then we learned that, hold on a second, they, they didn't actually completely overturn the decision. What they did was something we see a lot in Italian football, but it's probably a really foreign concept for anyone outside of Italy, which is the same punishment that Napoli and Roma fans got for the altercation on the A1, which is that the local fans, so residents of the specific cities are not allowed to travel to the match, but fans of that club from elsewhere are still allowed to attend, which I think Frankfurt's president made some comments or one of their board members about this, about how it doesn't even achieve the safety intentions because two thirds of their fans are not residents of that city. So they're still going to make their way or, or it's so easy to find a way around that, that they're still going to end up in the stadium. And generally I think what you want is just focus the attention and the resources on beefing up the security. And then to your point, yeah, I mean, things might happen. You hope they don't, you hope everyone behaves themselves. You hope people enjoy the city because let's be honest, Napoli 
really depends on tourism for a lot of work and, and income and, and all of that stuff. So I feel like it's tarnished this match a little bit because so much attention has been uh, focused on it. So I agree. I think maybe we can leave it there. I, I don't want to bring even more attention on it, to be perfectly honest. Let's just hope that it's a good match. Let's hope that Napoli come out on top in the tie and get to the quarterfinals of the Champions League for the first time in the club's history. Who would you like Napoli to get there? Um, I don't know. You look at the options and I think we kind of get to that point where there's not really a good choice. You don't want City. You assume Real Madrid goes through. You don't want them just because of, even though they're not having the greatest season, I just fear that they're just a different beast in the Champions League. Even Benfica, you know, like they're kind of like another Napoli. They're the team that you don't want to play against. No, I, I completely agree. I don't want City. I don't want Real Madrid. I don't want them right now anyway. I want them in the semifinals. I'm leaning towards just one of the Italian teams. Yeah, exactly. I want, <laughs> yeah, I would take Milan. I would take Inter or I would take Porto as well if Inter don't go through. Yeah. Or I would take Chelsea. I'd back us against Chelsea and I would love that because I'd be able to go and watch them in London, which would be amazing. But yeah, I don't want City right now and I, I definitely don't want Real Madrid. I think Real Madrid. The team that you can only really play in a final and you know hopefully just get the rub of the green that day but you know the fact that we're talking about potentially playing someone in a final because there is you know potential for us to get that far is just amazing but yeah i definitely don't want to get benfica they're an amazing team yeah absolutely well let's hope we get there first i tweeted this out because so many people were we're debating who would we like to play in the quarterfinals, and I just felt the need to remind everyone: there's still some work to be done. Let's get yeah, one hundred. <laughs> we can start uh, talking about that, Lorenzo. That's where we'll leave it. But thank you so much for taking the time right. today, Joe. Always lovely to to be with you and to spend some time with with you and the the English speaking Napoli fans. By the way, guys, yeah, I have a reminder in my diary to subscribe to your Patreon, Joe, because. The amount of work you and the other sort of creatives do within the, the Napoli fan worldwide streams is just so important. And, and you, know, you guys shouldn't go unrecognized. So just a reminder to all of your listeners that you know, we should contribute in some way to make sure that this is possible. Oh, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I mean, I would do it anyways, to be perfectly honest. But I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it helps. Uh, you can find Lorenzo on Instagram at my name is Lorenzo, which I feel like that was just like, I don't know what to type in here. So I'll just type that in. It's stuck. <laughs> I, so I've had that since I was 15. And, <laughs> you know, it just made sense to have it back then because if that is the case. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just stuck. It's, I'm not going to change it now. I'm yeah, too old it's now. too late now. <laughs> yeah. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fisketti5, and you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon at Fortsonopoly Pod. If you have a moment and you want to support the show in a different way, you can leave us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. That always helps the show as well. I will be back next week to review the Frankfurt match and to preview our final match before the international break, which is away at Torino. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? 
Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.